Welcome to Beneath the Willow Tree, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of truth through wonder, with me, Sophie Burkhardt. The Light Princess is a classic George MacDonald fairy tale in every way possible. It is fun, lighthearted, deeply profound, rather strange at times, and above all, shockingly beautiful. It is the story of a young princess whose gravity is taken away from her by the curse of a wicked witch who also happens to be her aunt. The princess grows up without any gravity, physically, mentally, or emotionally. By the time she reaches young womanhood, her parents are desperate. Her father insists that she be tied down by a multitude of strings wherever she goes, but her propensity to float away through the air is the least of his worries. In the words of MacDonald himself, the princess never could be brought to see the serious side of anything. Instead, the princess just laughs at everything. We may, as readers, be tempted to envy the princess. To never be sad would save us all a great deal of pain. But MacDonald here has something more to say about the princess and her laughter. In her laugh, he writes, there was something missing. What it was, I find myself unable to describe. I think it was a certain tone, depending on the possibility of sorrow. She never smiled. Later, MacDonald writes that, Quote, the hatching of a real hearty laugh requires the incubation of gravity. In a simple fairy tale, MacDonald makes a profound point. It is suffering, and the possibility of it, that brings a needed weight to our laughter and joy. It is not as if the princess cannot experience any happiness, but her experience will never be as rich or full as that of the person who knows what it feels like to suffer. Even the princess herself, without fully realizing it, knows that to have gravity is better. The one thing she loves best in all the world is a lake. She doesn't fully understand why she loves it so much, but it's because she becomes like any other person when she's in the water. Her gravity is restored. She becomes calmer and less prone to strange laughter. And MacDonald himself writes that this was, perhaps, because a great pleasure spoils laughing. When the princess experiences gravity, physical here, but serving also as a metaphor for gravity of heart and mind, she can experience a deeper and greater pleasure. We often talk about how wonderful Eden was. It was a place without sin, suffering, or death. It was a place lacking even the knowledge of such experiences. Sometimes we talk about it with such longing that we forget what lies ahead of us. On the new earth, we will live as people who have been redeemed out of sorrow and suffering. We, who know what it means to weep and mourn, will rejoice all the more when such things are no more. What I think MacDonald hits upon here is something we often tend to ignore. God is the God of all creation, and he is the grand storyteller. Are we really so proud as to think we ruined his whole plan in Eden? Maybe, just maybe, all of this. Our rebellion and sin, our suffering and death, have always been part of the story so that we may be redeemed into something so much better. Why? Because our God is always the God of redemption. This redemption, too, is something MacDonald hits upon in The Light Princess, and we'll talk about it soon. But before MacDonald gets to the princess's true cure, he describes two potential cures that quite completely missed the point of the princess's curse. The king and queen, in their desperation, consult the philosophers for help. 
and two of the greatest philosophers in the world answer the call, proposing two conflicting solutions. The first, Kopi Kek, is a spiritualist. He believes that there is some disconnect between the princess's soul and body, and he proposes a ludicrous solution involving the girl learning everything there is to know about the greatest cultures of the earth so that somehow her soul will be tied to the earth. The second, Humdrum, is a materialist. He believes that the princess's problem lies in something materially wrong with her and the way her body functions, and he argues that a complex and likely deathly procedure is the only way to cure her. Thankfully, the king and queen reject both of these ideas. But what's truly remarkable to me here is that MacDonald has taken the dualistic divide of materialism and spiritualism and exposed the utter folly of both positions. To limit ourselves only to the material world is just as ridiculous as to spin spiritual fancies that are not grounded in anything concrete. We as readers see this quite plainly, since we know that it is a curse, magic in fact, that has removed the princess's gravity. And it has nothing to do with a strictly material or spiritual issue. In fact, the ultimate cure might even be seen as some combination of this divide. In response to the two philosophers' ridiculous answers, MacDonald does give a hint to the true cure. He says, Perhaps the best thing for the princess would have been to fall in love. But how a princess who had no gravity could fall into anything is a difficulty. Perhaps the difficulty. Ultimately, the philosophers do hit upon part of the cure. Despite their quarreling, they agree that if the princess could be made to cry, then her gravity would be restored. Of course, their reasoning is flawed. They see that the outward water of the lake does her good, and therefore they assume that inward water would be even better for her. MacDonald, however, knows that it is not the water itself that cures the princess. It is the gravity that the water brings with it. And it is not the water of the tears that will cure the princess, but the love that causes her to cry. Thus begins the love story. A prince from a faraway land happens upon the princess while she is in the lake, and due to some level of confusion, he pulls her out to shore. She is enraged, and the prince, quite suddenly, falls in love with her. Why? Because her anger brings a certain level of gravity to her person that hasn't been there before, and therefore it makes her all the more charming than she ever has been in all of her life. Still, the princess does not love the prince, and she appreciates him only for what he can do for her, allow her to physically feel gravity. Night after night, the prince and princess swim in the lake, and night after night, he picks her up in his arms and jumps off a cliff into the water. When the princess is in the lake and is experiencing gravity, like in those moments of falling through the air, she is almost like other people. But the moment she leaves the water, she becomes her gravityless self again, and she can neither take the prince seriously nor understand his love at all. If life were to continue this way, perhaps the princess would never fall in love with the prince and never regain her gravity. But thankfully, suffering has a way of bringing about great good. And so... The princess is slowly forced to lose the one thing she loves most, her lake. Even still, as the lake slowly dwindles away, the princess never cries. Losing an inanimate object cannot bring her the gravity she needs. And the lake, while it provides her with some sense of physical gravity, does not force her to experience gravity of heart or mind. For that, she must love and lose a person. 
We soon discover that the lake is losing water due to the evil workings of the witch, Princess Megumnoid. She soon goes so crazy in her desire for revenge that she sucks up all the water in the kingdom, including even the tears of the people. At this point, the princess has forgotten all people, the prince included. If we were unsure of her character before, we can be certain now that she is a completely selfish being. She doesn't deserve the prince's love, but it is the only thing that can give her gravity and enable her to truly love. The king soon learns that the water, and therefore the princess, can be saved if a person can be found who is willing to sacrifice his life and plug up the hole in the lake with his own body. The prince, of course, determines to volunteer his life. After all, he thinks, if the princess were to die, his own life would not be worth living. He attempts, as he mulls over his fate, to laugh it off. But here, MacDonald says that the prince is unable to laugh. Why? Because in contrast to the princess, the prince can see the gravity of the situation. This is something bigger than laughter. The prince requests that the princess sit in a boat by his side as he slowly dies, and so together they go to the lake. The princess is her usual gravityless and selfish self. But the prince sings a song, and in his song he prays that a single thought of him and of his sacrificial love for her will spring in the princess a small well of love. It may indeed be too late for him, but still he desires that she not have a loveless and barren soul. Again, we see the imagery of the water bringing gravity to the princess. Eventually, the water covers over the prince and he stops breathing. And in that moment, everything changes. Suddenly, love courses through the princess's veins. It fills her with strength and she pulls the prince out of the hole and into her boat. He has saved the lake, he has saved her very soul, but he is gone. The princess rushes him back to her rooms, and she and her old nurse attempt to heal him. At last, the prince opens his eyes. The princess weeps, and as she cries, a great rain falls over all the country and fills the lands with the wondrous water. But the princess does not heed the lake. Her selfish love is gone. Perhaps the old nurse puts it best when she says she's found her gravity. The princess herself agrees, and even as she sobs, she is indeed happy. We might even say that she is far too happy for laughter. And as time passes, she slowly learns to move and walk under the weight of gravity with the help of the prince. For the princess to be a full person, she needs gravity. And for us to be full people, we need gravity. From our own experiences, we can see that MacDonald is right. Laughter is made richer because we know it's reverse. But more than gravity itself, as its own concept, we need love. It is love alone that enables the princess to experience gravity. Without love, she has nothing to care for and nothing to lose. And it is not love for an experience or a thing that she needs. It is unselfish love for another person. It is a sort of love that puts one's entire life on the line. It is dangerous love. Without this love, the princess can laugh, but she can never know true joy. There is something about experiencing suffering that grows us and strengthens us, enables us to love more deeply and laugh more fully. We ought not to run away from love and shut ourselves from anything serious. Like the princess, when we fall into love and gravity, we are welcomed into something more. This story is not attempting to say that, philosophically, good can only exist if evil also exists. After all, this story is a story. It's not a logical syllogism. 
And perhaps, if we saw our own world as a story that it is, we could reach a deeper understanding of the nature and purpose of our own suffering. Why? Because every good story ends better than it began, and suffering is always necessary along the way. Ultimately, this story is demonstrating that to spend a life avoiding pain and gravity is to live a second-tier life. Like C.S. Lewis says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. This story is also, of course, the gospel in miniature. Just as the prince chose to love the princess, even though she could not love him back. Just as he chose to sacrifice himself for her, even though she did not care. Just as his love redeemed her own, so too has Jesus done all of those things for us. God himself did not shy away from love. He did not attempt to avoid suffering. He stepped into it so that we would be redeemed. In his love for us, we have been given life. And now, now God dwells within us. I think this story too ends even better than it began.